We say a quick word about the uh, small group leaders training, not this week, uh, not coming up this week, but starting next week on Wednesday nights. That, um, as Neil mentioned, one of the one of the most effective ways to study the Bible is to do it together. Uh, and so coming up in the fall, when our small groups start again, our growth group, that's exactly what we aim to do. But it's also helpful to know how to do that well. And so uh, if you are uh, a current small group leader, or if you are someone who would like to lead a small group, uh, you will need to be a part of that training. Again, it's only two weeks. It shouldn't take very long, but we're going to cover a few things just about the purpose of small groups and even what are some of the best ways to do that. But even beyond that, so even beyond just our growth groups here at Grace Fellowship, if you would like to lead other people in small groups, so whether that's one-on-one or one-to-three, any kind of small group setting where you're leading a discussion around the Bible, we encourage you to come to that training. You'll find stuff that's helpful there. Uh, for If you want to teach even necessarily adult Sunday school, I think there are some things there uh, that would be helpful to you. So that's the next... Um, that starts not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, and it'll be at 6.30 over in, uh, we'll either do it in the Fellowship Hall or over in Salter Hall. But if you're interested in coming to that, uh, please talk to me after the worship service today. Uh, there are some of you that have led small groups here in the past, and uh, so we'll be talking with you more about uh, more about that. So I just want to encourage you to look for that um, that opportunity, that ministry opportunity. We've been working our way through the, the letter of 1 Corinthians, so if you would, turn Turn with me there. We're going to start reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If, you're, uh, if you don't have a Bible, please grab the one that's off the rack in front of you. Uh, we'll be on page 953 of, uh, of that Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And just to just remind you very quickly, if you've been here, Paul is addressing several issues that are happening in this church in the city of Corinth. Uh, and the major one that he deals with right up front is their divisions. Uh, and their divisions are rooted in their own pride. And they're rallying around different leaders in the church. Uh, and so Paul is saying this is not how the church is supposed to be. He's putting their pride to death uh, by pointing them back to Jesus uh, and He's going to finish that here in chapter 4. Uh, it's likely I'll read the whole chapter, but we're really just going to spend most of our time in the first seven verses of chapter 4. And so let's give attention to God's Word. Paul says this, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, moreover it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us 
not to go beyond what is written, so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I don't write these things to make you ashamed but to warn you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, puffed up, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to understand the word that you've given? Would you help us to see ourselves and to see our Savior, Jesus? Open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears. Give us understanding that we may be changed. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know how to spot a counterfeit? When I worked at Home Depot, we had these little markers that uh, if somebody gave us anything, uh, so a $20 bill and up, if somebody gave us a $20 bill or greater, we had a little marker that if we would just, we just ran the marker across it, and if it turned dark brown or black, that was a counterfeit bill. And you may remember, some of you anyway, that uh, starting in about the late 90s, the U.S. changed all of our paper currency. It hadn't been updated since the 1920s. Our money was very easily counterfeited. And so they started introducing all of these new features, special paper, glowing strips, holograms, etc. All of these different things that would supposedly make our money a lot harder to copy, a lot harder to counterfeit. So how do you spot a real Christian minister? How do you spot a counterfeit? 
What are the marks of the real thing? That's what Paul is beginning to give us here in chapter 4. See, what he's doing, what's happened in the church in Corinth is counterfeit teachers have started popping up. And they're leading the church astray. There's some imposters. And so Paul, uh, defending his own ministry, gives us an idea of, okay, what should we look for? If we want to be a community that's shaped by the gospel, shaped by Jesus, well, what is a, a Christian leader? Who's shaped by Jesus? What does he look like? What is a pastor, a true, real pastor of the gospel? What does he look like? Now, even as Paul is is doing this for himself, he's describing himself, I think there's a lot of things that not only can we glean for pastors and leaders in the church, but even for individuals. So even though your calling may not be to pastor a church, yet I think there are some things that we can glean even from Christian character uh, from these verses. We're going to really just do the first seven verses today uh, and probably the rest of the chapter next week. But I think Paul, at least in these first seven, gives us three things to look for. First, he says, you want to look for the heart of a servant. Second, you want to look for faithfulness to the word. And then third, you want to look for freedom from human opinion. So three things to look for in the real thing. The heart of a servant, faithfulness to the word, and freedom from human opinion. First, the heart of a servant. Look at uh, verse 1, what Paul says there. He says, this is how one, this is how a person should think about us. He says us, he's talking about the apostles, or he may be talking about the other teachers. But he says, this is one, this is how you should think about us. As servants of Christ. Now that word servant he introduces here. It's the first time in the letter he's used it. That word originally referred to the under rower. Right? And that's as glamorous as it sounds. So in the ancient world there were these, uh, there were these Greek warships called triremes and they had three levels of oars. That's how they moved. And the under rower was the guy you did not want to be. Because he was the guy who rode the very bottom oar, right? He was in the very bottom of the boat. That was, that was the under rower. You can think of all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't want to be that guy, right? If you can think about a cramped cabin with no AC, lots of sweaty guys working real hard to move this boat to the water, it probably wasn't a very pleasant working environment. Probably didn't smell very good. But probably, uh, the, the reason that that would be le- least appealing of all is who do you think's going down first? Right? When that, when that ship goes down, who is destined to go to the bottom with it? Yep. The guy in the very bottom of the boat. The under rower. That's, that's what Paul says. He's like, that's how I want you to think about us. That's how I want you to think about our ministry as apostles. We are servants. Now, in Paul's day, that had come to be really just kind of a generic term for a servant. But even still, the ideas of humility, uh, of obedience, right? Um, very few of us would say, yeah, sign me up. That's, that's who I want to be, right? Uh, in the scramble to kind of get up the ladder, Paul says, no, that's not how I want you to think about us. I want you to think about us as servants. I want you to think about us as stewards. Now, what's a, what's a steward? Uh, in uh, A steward would have been like a, a chief servant. So in a large house or a large estate, the steward was kind of in charge of the whole thing. He didn't own the house, but he was responsible for making sure everything ran 
according to the master's wishes. And he was even responsible for making sure the other servants, A, did their jobs, but also got fed. Uh, the steward was the one responsible for the master's possession. Okay, so he was not the master. He's not the owner of the house, but he is the steward. He's kind of the chief servant. Paul says, that's how I want you to think about us. We're servants. We're stewards. Uh, we're stewards of God's mysteries, is what Paul says. Mysteries. What in the world does that mean? Well, in Corinth, in Paul's day, mystery religions were big. Right? They were, uh, they, they were these little cults. And what uh, the reason they use that term mystery is because they were these secretive religious groups where only those who were initiated, only those who went through initiation got the mystery. They were they were on the inside. They got the truth. Everybody else on the outside was was kind of left out of the mystery. So think, you know, hooded priests, dark rooms, flickering candles, that whole thing, right? Modern day equivalent would be something like the Masons, where you you know, only the initiates get to understand uh get to understand the true mystery. And you can think about why that would be appealing to people to be a part of that because uh, don't you want to be in on the secret? Isn't that a, isn't that a very uh, base human desire that we all we we always want to be included? We always feel bad when we're excluded. We always want to be on the inside. And so mystery religions appealed to kind of our baser human instincts of always of always wanting to be included on the inside on the know. So Paul takes that word mystery here. And he steals it from them and he uses it for good. He basically is looking at them and he's saying, he's looking at those mystery cults which some of the Corinthians may have practiced and been a part of and he says, there's no truth there. That's not the real mystery. Paul says the real mystery is the plan of God that was hidden for a long time but has now been revealed in Jesus. In Colossians 2, he says that, he says this, Colossians 2, verse 3, he's praying for the Colossians and he says he wants them to understand all of God's riches and have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Jesus is the mystery. Jesus is the open secret. So if, if, if that sounds really confusing, let me just put it this way. When the, when the New Testament uses the word mystery, it's not using it like we use it, Right? When we think of mystery, you know, if you're 15 above, you think of Murder, She Wrote. My grandmother watched that all the time. If you're younger than that, I'm not quite sure what we think of. But, right, something, something that has to be figured out, something that has to be discovered. In the New Testament, a mystery is something that was hidden but is now revealed. Paul's saying that the mystery is that in the Old Testament... Jesus was obscured, but now in the New Testament, God's plan of salvation is revealed. We know it, we understand it, it's out in the open, right? And so what Paul is saying is, you don't have to be initiated to understand what we're about. You don't have to be on the inside um, to understand what the church is about. There are no flickering candles and hooded priests here. God's mystery, his open secret is the cross. If you want to be in on it, all you have to do is turn from your sin and trust in Jesus who was crucified in your place so that you could be accepted. That's the mystery. Paul says, 
We're stewards of that mystery. We are servants whose job is to preach that mystery, Christ crucified. The really mysterious thing is the deep, deep love of a holy God who wants to save sinners from themselves. From themselves. So, if we're going to put all that together, Paul says, think about us as servants. Think about us as stewards of God's mysteries. We work for God. The way we would apply that is the, the first mark of the real thing, of a real minister, is we want to look for, look for and encourage humble, servant-hearted ministers who preach the gospel. That's, that's the first mark. And just by way of application, how different is that than the way we usually evaluate leadership, right? Like typically in our context, in the business world or in the political world, we want, we want to look for people who will stop at nothing to get ahead, right? We want to look for people who are ambitious, ladder climbing, you know, they don't, I mean, we're not okay with them stepping on other people, but if they're really good at their job, we are okay with that. Right? If they're getting the job done, that's who we want. And Paul says, not in the church. The people you want to lead you need to be servants first. That if they have the choice, they're taking the lowest deck on the boat. So that if the ship goes down, they go down with it. That's how you ought to think about us. Look for servant hearts. Look for hearts of service dedicated to the mystery of God, dedicating to Christ and Him crucified. That's how you evaluate Christian leadership. Second, he says this, look for faithfulness. Look at verse 3. Excuse me, at the end of verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's, that's the quality that, eva- that you evaluate a steward on, right? If, if a guy's working for you and he's not faithful, what do you do? Fire him, right? If he's, if, if he's embezzling money from your business or if he's not quite getting the job done, you let him go. Paul says the quality of a steward is that he's faithful. Now, How do we judge faithfulness? What does it look like to be faithful in the church? Well, a steward would have had a twofold responsibility, right? Under faithfulness, there's there's two areas we can look at. First, he had to be faithful to the people he worked over, right? He had to, he was not allowed, the steward is not allowed to abuse the other servants with his words or with his fist. He was not an abusive boss. Right? A steward was not allowed to abuse the other servants. He wasn't allowed to withhold their food or their pay for his personal gain. He would be an unfaithful steward if he did that. So a steward has a responsibility to the people that he works over. He's responsible to the house. And we could say that in in what Paul's saying then is, right, he's looking at the church and I'm looking at you and I'm saying, I don't work for you, but I do work for you. You see the distinction there? A faithful minister does not, he is not an employee of the church to do whatever the church bids him do. But he does work for 
the church. He works for the good of the household. In the same way that a steward doesn't work for the cook. But he does work for the cook. That distinction is subtle, but key. And the reason that a steward is responsible to the household is that he's faithful to his master. The great quality of a steward is that he is faithful. Faithful to his master. So, applying to the church, a man can be a great visionary so that droves of people will follow him. He may be a good organizer, so he's able to, he's able to get people plugged in to ministry, get them moving in different directions. He can be a very gifted speaker or teacher or communicator so that people will come for miles just to listen to him. But none of those are the qualities of a good steward. None of those are the litmus test. The litmus test of a good steward is he's faithful to his master. He's faithful to Jesus. Look down in verse 6. Paul says, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, so that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. A faithful steward is faithful to his master's word. He's not interested in giving his opinion. The church is not built on his opinion. He does not lead his people beyond the bounds of what Jesus has taught. He says, we stay within what is written. Do not go beyond what is written. This is similar to what Paul said in the previous chapter last week when we talked about being built on the foundation of the church, Christ and him crucified. So a faithful servant of Christ does not go beyond what is written, and neither should those who listen to him. So we want to look for the heart of a servant. We want to look for faithfulness to the word. But then finally, and maybe most shockingly, we want to look for freedom from human opinion. Look, at, look back at uh, verse 3. It's interesting, as soon as Paul brings up this qualification of faithfulness, the question is, okay, well, who judges that? Who judges the faithfulness of a person's ministry? Who gets to, who's, who's over that? And Paul gives us three options. Other people, myself, or God. There are three options that Paul walks us through. Is it other people? Is it myself? Or is it God? Here's what Paul says. Other people... He says, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul says, I'm not judged by you. Now, here's what's happening. In Corinth, they're judging Paul. And, by, and listen, we're not talking about judging in terms of salvation. We're talking about they're criticizing his ministry. They're saying, ah, Paul... You know, he doesn't look like much, and yeah, I mean, I guess he was helpful on the front end, but now, I don't know, I really like what the guy over here is saying a whole lot more. Paul's not, let's, let's forget about Paul, right? They're passing judgment on Paul's ministry. They're saying, meh, Paul's not much. And so what Paul says in return is, okay, and can you do that? When people criticize you, is that how you respond? Okay. Paul says it is a very small thing, it is the least thing for me to be judged by you or by any human court. I'm not worried about what you say. 
human assessments of my ministry are a small thing, Paul says. I wish I had the freedom to say that. But then he keeps going. Other people? No. What about myself? Paul says, in fact, I don't even judge myself. Now, sometimes, you know, we kind of go either way. If we're not slaves to other people's opinions, we're typically a slave to our own, right? Um, over here, we may think way too much of ourselves. And Paul says, you know what, I don't even judge myself. Now, I'm not aware of anything against myself, he says. I don't know of any reason that, that I should criticize my own ministry, but he says that's not really, that's not really the court either. I don't really stand judged by myself either. Just because I don't know anything bad about myself uh, doesn't mean that I'm thereby acquitted. That doesn't mean I'm in the clear. Right? We're not really good judges of ourselves. The idea of, uh, the idea of trusting your gut and going with it. Uh, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Paul says, I am not my own judge. Well, if not, then who? Paul says, it is, at the end of verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. I can't help but think this is gonna, this is both gonna date me and probably be irrelevant to most of you, but I feel like I have to mention it anyway. Anybody listen to Tupac a long time ago? Okay, I just took a shot out there. Right? But he made famous this idea of only God can judge me. But it's really interesting that when you look at his lyrics, he sure did talk a lot about himself. He sure did, he, he, he rapped all the time about his own lifestyle, about how bad he was, about how hard he was, right? About, about what an awesome guy he was. So for somebody who says only God can judge me, he sure did pass a lot of judgment on himself so that he could gain the approval of others. Interesting. Paul doesn't do that. That's not the way Paul's working here. He's not, and I think we sometimes have that tendency. You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. When we really don't mean it. Paul, on the other hand, says, listen, I don't know anything about myself, but that doesn't give me a pass. I'm waiting on God's judgment. I'm going to trust Him to be the judge. I'm looking to Him. Paul says this, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Don't, don't criticize just yet. Let's wait and see. Wait till the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. Why is Paul able to trust God's judgment? Because he knows that when God comes, and he will, when God appears on the last day, when Jesus parts the clouds of heaven and comes down, everything that we can't see will be seen. Everything that is hidden now will be revealed, right? Light will pierce the darkness, even the darkness of the human heart, right? He says it will disclose the purposes of the human heart. Even what's hidden in here will finally be revealed. Paul says that's the moment of truth. That is the judgment. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. Commendation, what a wonderfully sterile English word, right? Um, let's read it this way. Then each one will receive his praise, his applause from God. 
Paul says, let me use another pop music reference. Paul says, I'm no Lady Gaga. I don't live for your applause. I live for God's applause. Right? That's what Paul is saying. I live for God's applause. What makes him so confident? What makes him so free? Let me ask you that. Can you, can you possibly make a statement as free as that? I don't care what other people think. I don't even care what I think about myself. How do you... For Paul, Paul's God is so big that everyone else, including himself, is small. Paul's God is so big that everyone else around him, including himself, including his own self-assessment, is small. It's trifling to him. How do we get there? I would argue that most of us struggle with some form of fearing other people, right? Some form of pleasing other people. And that looks one of two ways. Either, and I think this is where probably most of us are, either we tend to think too lowly of ourselves, Right? This is where self-pity hangs out. So, will you listen to me? Will you, will you pay attention to me? Will you look at me? Aren't I nice? Aren't I great? Right? Maybe it doesn't sound as annoying, uh, in your head as it sounds in mine, but I would say most of us crave the approval of other people kind of on that self-pity side of the spectrum. Okay? Uh, and the world's answer to that person is, well, you just need higher self-esteem. You need to, you need to look at yourself better than you currently do, right? You, you are worthy of listening to. You are special. But that's not really what Paul says. On the other side of that spectrum, we think too highly of ourselves, right? This was not, this would not be self-pity. This would be what we would probably characterize as arrogance, right? Uh, watched an interview with a, a well-known actor the other night and the, and the first thing that I, uh, that I came across to my mind was like, man, he really thinks pretty highly of himself, right? You can just tell when somebody has a really high estimation of who they are and what they do, right? Um, they kind of tend to say, no, no, you should look at me. No, you really do need to listen to me. I am great. Maybe I am the greatest. Uh, or kind of along with that, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, whether you like it or not. And the world's answer to that person is, uh, you need to think less of yourself. Right? So if we're over here, the world says, no, more self-esteem, think more of yourself. And if we're over here, the world says, think less of yourself. Right? Now, where does that leave you? Kind of on this pulley, going back and forth. Right? Am I over here or am I over here? Am I thinking too much of myself or too little of myself? Right? Paul gives a third answer. Uh, Paul, uh, to both of those approaches, right, both of those approaches leave you in the judge's seat, right? Leave human approval in the chair. Paul gives a different approach. A Christian counselor named Ed Welch wrote a book uh, from which I obviously got an illustration uh, called When People Are Big and God is Small. When People Are Big and God is Small. He says this, Fear, in the biblical sense includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe. 
being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people. Does that sound familiar to you? Being, uh, holding someone in awe, being controlled by or mastered by people, worshiping other people. He goes on to say this, most of us are more concerned about looking stupid, fear of people, fear of man, rather than we are about acting sinfully, fear of God. So if you want to know which one you struggle with, if it's a fear of man or fear of God, God, just ask yourself, uh, are you more afraid of looking stupid or being caught in sin? Are you more afraid of looking stupid or sinning? Maybe would be the better way to put that. Right? That's the, that's the question you need to ask yourself. Uh, where do I fall? Woo! Where do I fall on like the human approval, God approval scale? Am I afraid of looking stupid or am I afraid of sinning? So, how do we become free? Once we kind of diagnose that we have a fear of man, how do we become free from that? If the world's answer is either think more of yourself or think less of yourself, I think Paul has a better idea. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says that um, he wants us to learn not to go beyond what is written so that none of us may be puffed up, bloated, conceited, puffed up in favor of one against another. And then he asks these questions, and I think this is, this is where he gets about us putting this fear to death. He says, who sees anything different in you? Who sees anything superior in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What's Paul saying? He's, he's looking at them and he's saying, why are you guys fighting with each other again? Like, why is this person saying they're better than that person? Aren't you boasting as if you've gotten something, like if you earned something that God instead has given you? Why are you boasting as if all of your gifts you earned? Paul, Paul lets the air out of their bloated, puffed-upness by pointing them back to God who gives the gifts. So I think that at least beginning... To start, how do we become free like Paul? We have to look away from ourselves. It's not, uh, do I think less of myself or more of myself? We look away from ourselves altogether. And we look at God the giver. And we look at God's grace. And we say, that's how we upend this conceit. Right? Paul points them to the God who will judge. Now, isn't that terrifying? Just a little bit. Right? Paul somehow is able to look at the judgment of God and say, I'm looking for that. I'm waiting for that. How in the world does he do that? Ed Welch again. He says, the gospel is the story of God covering his naked enemies. Isn't that what what ultimately you're really afraid of? Being exposed? Isn't that why we try to cover ourselves? Isn't that what Adam and Eve were trying to do in the garden? Cover themselves? They were afraid of being exposed. They were, exp- they were even afraid of being exposed to God's holiness, God's wrath. They were naked before God's eyes. And what, is, what does the gospel say? 
it says that God has come to cover his naked enemies, bringing them to the wedding feast and then marrying them rather than crushing him. The reason that Paul can look at God's judgment is is because he knows that Jesus has already spoken for him. The reason that Paul does not have to be afraid of man's opinion or of his own opinion is because they have no power to crush him. Jesus was already crushed in his place. If Jesus has been crushed, then I am free. And if I am free, then instead of being afraid of you rejecting me, I can actually lean into it. That's what Paul's doing. These people want nothing to do with Paul. Even though Paul planted their church, Paul got them started, they are rejecting his authority. They don't want him there. And Paul says, not good enough. I'm stepping into it. I am stepping into your disapproval because I know that God has something better for you. That's what freedom in the gospel enables us to do. We're no longer afraid of man's rejection, but we can step into it. Because we know that we are not being rejected. Jesus has already been rejected on our behalf. And if we are in Christ, no rejection of man can even touch us. What does Jesus say? Don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the soul, right? If, we, if God is for us, as Paul would say, who can be against us? So, Paul points us back to God away from ourselves so that we can be free from human opinion and we can follow leaders who are free from human opinion. I'm not there yet, but I would like to be. And by the grace of God... Maybe we all will be one day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would apply this word to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.